is like old-fashioned style subway car. So today we learned we are allowed to do this in the subway. Nobody has stopped us. And the cops were right next to us. And they really were. So. That's me and Paco. We're roaming the streets of New York. This episode is the last of the season. We thought, what better way to end the season than to talk about success? So you'll be following the two of us as we travel the streets of New York City, interviewing the most unique businesses we could find that have quote-unquote made it. I'm Darby Masters, and you're listening to I Make a Living. Craziest entrepreneur idea I've ever heard of. Elon Musk trying to take people to another planet. A dog park. They had a bar in there, and everybody had their dog was drinking. And I was like, oh, these are the smartest people in the world. I actually met a guy who's like in Atlanta, and he cleans trash cans. And he cleans them because it always makes people's like garages smell. But I think it's a great idea because I really think a lot of people would use it. I mean, once upon a time, I guess before it was Airbnb? Well, one time I was riding down the highway and I saw a van and the van had like pickle flavoring, like a powdered packet. It was like Kool-Aid, but pickle flavored. In New York, they have this thing called dollar vans, which in my opinion was Uber before Uber existed. Who would ever thought that idea would be worth billions when you put in the app and you know, you build it out. So to me, that's the craziest thing that I think of, especially when you think about getting in a car with a stranger. Do you ever come across a business where you think, how did that actually make it? Or how in the world did someone come up with that? Well, this episode, we're not just focusing on successful businesses. We're focusing on very, for lack of a better word, unique successful businesses. And what better place to find something that fits this description than NYC? So we captured a few interviews and we're highlighting four of the most interesting businesses we found. I got put in a um, National Geographic kids book, A Hundred Things to Be. Like, when you grow up, you can be a line sitter? Yeah, it's a hundred things to be when you grow up. And it's a National Geographic's kids title. And I'm featured, I think it's page 93, if I'm not mistaken. And this is Robert Samuel. He's a professional line sitter. He waits for sneakers and tickets and donuts and things like that. Robert Samuel. He's the founder and CEO of a professional line-sitting company called Same Old Line Dudes. People hire him and his employees to wait in line, or just wait in general, sometimes for hours and hours on end. We asked Robert if we could interview him about his journey, how he came up with the concept, and how it took off. It was the first warm and dry week of the summer for New York, so we set up our portable recording equipment in the courtyard of the hotel we were staying at. Hi, how are you, Robert? Nice to meet you. This was the first time I had met Robert in person. I immediately noticed how unmistakable his presence was. He was tall, around 6'5", and held himself with confidence. When he walked into a room, everyone seemed to notice. He greeted me with a smile and a firm handshake. It didn't take long for us to fall into a comfortable rhythm of conversation. He was a great conversationalist, so it was pretty easy to ask him more about his business. Same Online Dudes is basically a group of people, not necessarily men, that wait in line for profit for New York's most desirable events, things, concerts, bars, you name it. If there's a physical stand-in-line wait on the sidewalk, then people tend to hire us for that. 
Another part of this whole setup, which would be helpful to know, is that we hired Robert Services. We wanted to understand how his business worked, so while we were interviewing him for the podcast, there were two men waiting in line for our tickets to see one of the most on-demand Broadway shows at the time, To Kill a Mockingbird. And actually, we had just come from interviewing these two line sitters, Jeff and Jerry, just outside the Schubert Theater in Times Square, where they were first in line to get tickets. Uh, we came at five. Right. I got, well, actually, it's here at four. He came at five, and five was our official start time. That's Jeff. He and Jerry were in line, waiting for the box office to open at 10 a.m. We hired them to wait in line for five hours. And what do you guys usually do when you're waiting? I read a lot. I know Jerry reads because he's studied. So, you know. What are you studying for? I'm uh, studying for the bar exam. People read as I do. People study as I do. Listen to music, watch videos. Watch videos, yeah. And then you, when you get bored with all that, you start walking going, Jesus, did I really want to do this? But yeah, we do it. <laughs> I ended up grabbing dinner with Jeff and Jerry later that week and got to hear all about their lives. As he mentioned, Jerry's studying for the bar exam, which he'll be taking at the end of the month. And Jeff, he's an avid reader. He gave me a full historical account of Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. So when they weren't brushing up on world news and reading the latest intellectually stimulating book, they waited in line. Rain, shine, snow, sleet, they waited. The most extreme situation weather-wise was 13 out of 15 hours of uh, SNL wait raining, pouring, and cold, and the brand of boots I have, I've discovered that water resistant is not the same as waterproof. That was Jerry, and the longest he'd ever waited in line for was 72 hours. Kind of the most, you know, testy situation was the early days of Hamilton. Yeah. This is like back 2016, I think it was, you know, at the height of the Hamilton mania. People got really, really crazy and aggressive as the time to distribute tickets right, came to. Like pushing the line, trying to cut in the line, I'm trying to, to yeah, trying to like, no, I was here, I was here. And you're like, okay, but I knew who I was here with. What are you talking about? You were here. And they would really want to fight. That was Jeff. I asked him if he'd ever gotten into a fight. He said no, but it's not uncommon to see one break out. I found the whole line waiting culture fascinating. The longest I'd ever waited in line for anything was probably to get my passport renewed, which was only about two hours. Robert, the founder of Same Old Line Dudes, told me some of the most interesting things that they were hired to wait for, which included a primely located picnic table overlooking the Brooklyn Bridge and Manhattan skyline, a bar stool at a popular sports bar on game day, and 12 hours for a competitive apartment application. Doesn't all fit on my business card. I, did, I, do, I list the most popular requests <laughs> okay. and things that would say, oh, that makes sense, makes sense, but then you get stuff like that, and it still blows me away, even, you know, six and a half years later. That was Robert again. Six years. He's been doing this for six years. It started in December of 2012, okay. officially. Okay, okay. But unofficially, I was waiting in line for someone's iPhone. You know, the iPhone comes out every September. Yeah. So I posted an ad on Craigslist after being unemployed, fired, basically, from AT&T. Okay. And I wanted to be part of the iPhone experience, but since I wasn't selling the phones this time around, I said, let me be a customer for somebody and hold somebody's spot and just be among the, you know, pandemonium and the excitement of the whole iPhone experience. And the customer who hired me 
ended up canceling because his order went through online, but he still paid me and encouraged me to sell my spot. I was number two in line. And after getting a temp assignment, and that attempt assignment was over, I said, oh, what am I going to go do now? And I remembered to the day that I made actually $325 selling spots in the coveted iPhone 5 line throughout the night. Okay, so that's how it all started. That's how it all started, yeah. And then how did you actually go from it being a concept to actually it being a business? It was largely due to the popularity of the Cronut. Yes, you heard him correctly. His business took off because of the popular donut croissant hybrid known as the Cronut. The phenomenon was started by a New York-based French baker called Dominic Ainsley. It was all the rage in the summer of 2013, and the lines were as long as three hours long. Oh, and wow. And people didn't want to wait three hours in the morning. Just for, for a Cronut. A, a pastry. Cronut. A, a yep, pastry. A pastry, yeah. Okay. And as his media and press coverage started to grow, they would come out to the line and we would always be first because we knew we wanted to get the product and deliver it to the client. And so you have French media. What are you doing so early? You know, and then we had Spanish media (laughs) and Russian media and all kinds of media. And we're line sitters. People pay us to wait. You are not eating it yourself. You are hired to pay. And so (laughs) as we started to get more press, it was weird because cameras would show up and it wasn't like it was for the cronut and that phenomenon, but it was about the guys, mostly it was guys at that time, who were paid to go deliver cronuts. So, yeah, one thing led to another, and then people started calling us, oh, I saw you about the cronut. Can you do sneakers for me? Can you do, you know, Broadway shows? And that was actually, the intention was anything with the weight, we would be your go-to. It was weird when I, the concept came into my head, it was like, I want to be that one guy. wasn't even thinking about a company or a team of people. Oh, there's that same old line dude, that, the dude that's always... Like, I wanted to be the person that you always thought of. Or when you saw in a line, oh, he's not there for himself. He's waiting for somebody else. And I wanted something that was an acronym that turned into something. So same old line dude sold, S-O-D. So, I mean, because of us, it was sold. Versus if you did it on your own, could have been sold out. Clever. Robert has a good thing going. He has a handful of employees, a pretty consistent flow of business, and an unlimited amount of lines in New York. I think he'll be staying in business for a while. All right. Unique business number two, Iris Scott. So they, it it keeps on going in and out. Your mic does. So they're going to work on it a little bit. Do you need her to keep talking? Okay. So we got this audio the first trip we took to New York back in March. We were trying to get a sound check. So I asked her a few random questions. Do you have pets? I have a, <laughs> as she just began to glow, <laughs> uh, I have a cat <laughs> named Foxy who's oh, four. Fun. Isn't it funny? I'm more excited about the cat than I am in my entire career. <laughs> hey, it's like love. You know, you feel like Man. all of this love for your animal. She's a celebrity in my uh, eyes. I believe that. That's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe I know her. <laughs> this interaction sums up Iris pretty well. She's warm and friendly. She smiles a lot. She has big curly blonde hair and an enormous amount of love for her cat, Foxy. I would describe her as free-spirited with a love for life, and her career path only further influences this thought. So I finger paint professionally <laughs> with my cat. <laughs> In my apartment, and I listen to audiobooks all day long about manifestation and higher self and dropping fear and becoming more loving and thinking of everyone else as yourself. So, yes, 
Iris is a professional finger painter, a very successful professional finger painter. Can you describe your artwork? If I were to characterize my work, it would be particularly colorful, pretty rainbow palette. I don't shy away from the various colors. It's very textural, so the paint comes off the canvas a lot like maybe a Van Gogh would. And uh, my subjects range from people, places, animals, things. And lately, things are getting a, a bit more narrative and mythological. Fantastical is how I would describe her art. When you look at one of her pieces, it's like you're transported into another world. I think like a light attitude, an airy sort of childlike attitude is where I want to be. And I want my art to convey that because I actually think that adults, if they did feel more childlike, would be essentially like we'd all be on LSD, okay? Because I think kids are on LSD. When I observe them, I'm like, okay, you guys are on drugs. (laughs) And that's why they're so happy is because they're light. They're out of the ego. They're playing. They love rainbows and, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that. They're not worried about whether or not their, you know, jeans are the right cut, you know, for this season. Like, that's so tiring. It takes a lot of energy to worry about that. This gives you a glimpse into the mind of Iris Scott. She's an artist through and through. We sat in the studio and talked about the meaning of life, what success really means, you know, the deep questions in life. So let's talk about when you started. So I started in elementary school. I practiced through high school when so many other kids dropped off just because we live in this really weird world where everyone's looking for the gifted gene. And I just don't think that exists. I think Mm -hmm. it's a practice thing. Mm -hmm. And I just kept going. And so it fulfilled this prophecy of, oh, you're the artist. But really, I I think that it's, it's a shame in many ways that I was labeled and other kids weren't. Oh, how interesting. (laughs) And then in high school, I started to sell paintings for like $50. And then by 2009, I was graduated from college and started to utilize the internet to sell works. What was your first way of technically marketing yourself? My first way of marketing myself was I was just posting everything I was making. It was 2009, Facebook was starting to take off. And I'd be like, meow, 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 this is what I'm working on today. And I would take a a status shot of the beginning and the middle and the end. And by the time I was finished with the painting, you know, a few acquaintances. Because back then it was like, what, 300 friends and followers? Sure, on Facebook. would say, hey, how much is that? Can I buy that? And I was like, yeah. (laughs) So um, that's how it took off. Took off sounds like the understatement of the year. It's more like blew up. Her work now sells as high as $45,000 a piece. In 2009, I sold a painting. You know, fast forward to 2019, and I'm living in New York. I'm essentially a successful artist, right? I have a solo show in Chelsea, and the paintings are tens of thousands of dollars. Like, how do you go from $50 on Facebook to that? Yes, tell me. And uh, (laughs) we're going to have to talk about money. Okay, let's talk about money. Okay. So what I did, and I need to preface this by saying... I'm sure there's other ways to do this, but this is what worked for me. And maybe it could work for others, but it's pretty simple. In 2009, I had graduated college and I had moved to Taiwan, kind of on a whim. 
I knew that the cost of living there was really low, and I had roughly a $7,000 savings and no debt from a nannying job right after. Amazing, And living in my mom's basement. So I paid off school, made some savings, and then booked a flight abroad to see what would happen in a year. So I land in Taiwan. I get a little studio. I buy some art supplies. And I settle in to this $100 a month apartment. That actually overlooks the ocean. Oh my god. <laughs> that's gosh. how that's how inexpensive <laughs> it is. My rent now is thirty two hundred dollars. Crazy. Okay, and it does not have ocean view. <laughs> so I wanna stress that in the beginning of making a living from art, what worked for me was figuring out how low you could go in your cost of living. And I discovered that I could find an apartment for a hundred dollars a month and basically um, eat for four dollars to five dollars a day. My scooter at the time was uh, two dollars a day. So, like, just think about that for a second. At a hundred dollars a month for rent, if you post a painting for fifty dollars that took you two days to make, you're kind of crushing it. So, first it was a fifty dollar painting, and then it was a hundred dollar painting, and then it was a hundred and fifty dollar painting. And I'm getting better and better. And things that aren't selling, I'm just like either giving it away or I'm fire sailing it. You know, like I'm just painting every day and I'm spending almost no money, right? So I had the freedom to experiment without it risking my ability to cover the costs of my life on art. So I essentially went full time immediately because I moved abroad into a country that was a really low cost of living. Professional line sitter, professional finger painter, these are definitely jobs that fit under the category of unique and unusual. And both Robert and Iris are certainly making a living out of them. But the third unique business we decided to cover is actually a category of businesses, and it's pretty well known. Still unique, but not exactly unusual. Well, at least not to those who live in cities. I'm talking about busking. They sound Spanish. One thing that probably every tourist encounters when they visit New York is a busker. If you're unfamiliar with this word, busking is simply street performing. And there are buskers all over Times Square and the subway. We were curious about how much people make performing on the street, so Paco and I set out to find out. This this guy was going to be good. He was very good. He was tall, slim, moving to the music while he played his guitar. He had a setup of CDs for sale and an open case for people to drop their money as they walked by. We weren't there for more than a minute when a woman walks by with a roller suitcase and begins dancing. She wasn't shy and didn't really care who was watching. She danced by herself, no need for a partner. And from the look of it, she'd done some professional dancing at some point. The guitarist saw us at a distance watching with all of our recording equipment. He motioned for us to come over and asked, what's up? sort of a podcast about unique businesses and we're doing an interview with uh, subway buskers to learn a little bit more about what it is for you to play in the subway it's fun sometimes it's hard the the heat sometimes it's hard with uh, the cold or the stink this guy was really good he kept playing as we asked him questions how long have you been doing it 
I was doing it three years and I moved to Panama. Are you from Panama? Portuguese. I'm living in Panama now, just came here for a kind of a vacation. Nice. If you, so don't, mind, yeah, if yes. you don't mind me asking, on a good day, what, how much can you make on a, on a shift? On a very good day, on the, on the Vanderbilt Holiday Fair, I played for five hours and I made $800. $800? I sold 60 CDs. That was like probably three years ago on Christmas. Yeah. On an average day? On a normal day? 180, 200, sometimes less. Five hours. Three hours. Three hours and you make 50? 150. 150. And what was your name? Leonel Lorador. Lionel was as cool as he sounded, very suave, with his romantic beats and mysterious look. We stayed just a little longer, took his card, offered him a thank you tip, and continued on our way. Are we getting off at the next stop? Times Square. Times Square. This is Times Square? Yes. Okay. 42nd Street, Times Square, transmittable to the 1237 ACEXQW, Shuttle Grand we decided to hit up Times Square, where we knew there would be plenty of street performers. What is that for? That's street performers, too. Oh, is it? Those are the, those are the pop. Those are the, they'll be hard to interview, but those are the ones that do like a full um, um, show and they get people interaction. and. That's got to be like 40 people right there. Yeah, yeah. It's, you want to go see? Being from Chicago, I'm no stranger to the street performing groups, the ones that attract a massive amount of onlookers and require audience participation. They'll call you. Make a contact, you're done. Avert the eyes if you don't want to be called on. I know that much. But I was daring this time and didn't avert my eyes because a part of me wanted to participate, at least just to experience it. Sadly, I wasn't chosen, so I had to be content with just watching, which I was. There's always something very alluring about these specific performances. If you've been in any major city, you'll know the ones I'm talking about. There's a lot of dancing and dangerous jumping involved, like jumping over six people in the audience, that type of thing. But I've never talked to anyone in these performances, so I was kind of excited to. Once the show ended, we made eye contact with one of the street performers. I had all my equipment out, so it was kind of obvious we weren't just passing through. Hello, sir. How are you doing? Good. How are you? My name is Paco. We, we have a podcast and we do a couple of interviews with unique performers. Okay. I wonder if we could ask you a few questions about performing in, in Times Square. Yeah, you can ask me as much questions as you want. Come on, hit me. All right. How long have you been doing this? I've been doing this for about 12 years now. A year. How did you decide to start it? In third grade, elementary school. <laughs> I seen a movie. It was crazy. Sorry. What was the movie? You Got Served. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, what's a day like for you uh, performing in New York? It's very wonderful. I get to meet beautiful people like yourselves. On a good day, if you don't mind sharing, what's, okay. how much you guys make on a good day? All right, if I do about four shows, we say $1,000 inside the bag. So we'll split up $350 apiece if that's only three people. Wow. wow. Yes. How many days a week do you perform? Every day. Every day. The only days that I take off is Monday. Do you consider this your full-time job? Like, is there anything else you have going on? I consider this a hobby. I wouldn't even necessarily consider it a job because I do have a job, but I do consider this a hobby. Do you mind sharing what your job is? Starbucks. So say you started this about 12 years ago. Do you coin like the concept or the idea of the performance you do, or is there like who came up with the concept? 
I don't necessarily know who came up with the concept, but I know if it's been around for decades. Okay. Like, since, like, the early 70s, late 60s. Okay. And street performing and whatever art it is, it was built to keep the minority out of poverty and to stay off the streets. And that's why a lot of people that you see out here today do what they do. We found out later his name was Joshua. He does this for a hobby, but it's a pretty monetarily beneficial hobby, I'd say. If he makes about $350 a day, six days a week, that ends up being a little over two grand a week. So $8,000 a month and just under $100,000 a year. Profitable? I think yes. Test, 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 test. At this point, we were wandering around just taking in the chaos and excitement of Times Square. At around 4 p.m., it started to get really crowded. Oh my gosh, there's Batman. Batman? Batman. <laughs> we can interview Batman. You want to interview Batman? Is that even a question to be posed? Who wouldn't want to interview Batman? And this Batman seemed particularly cool. He had a pair of platform shoes on and color-reflective sunglasses. Paco made the approach. Quick question. We have a podcast for entrepreneurs and small businesses. We're doing an episode for unique jobs from random jobs that people do. So we are interviewing a number of people. Could you mind if I ask you a couple of questions about what it is uh, to be like a performer in Times Square? In Spanish. In Espanol? Si? Sadly, I don't know Spanish, but luckily, Paco does. He interviewed Batman and translated the whole thing. So he's been doing it for three years uh, in Times Square. Uh, he's been in, in, in New York for three years. So I asked him how did he come up with Batman suit, and he said that he was thinking of a superhero that was um, appealing to not just uh, men, but women, but also kids, kind of like the uh, superhero that everyone identifies with. Okay, so ask him what's a, a day in the life of being a Times Square performer. He said it's uh, usually something like this. It's a very nice day. People are here to have a good time. So uh, the good thing is that there's a lot of options. So people can choose which superhero they identify the best with. Um, and, and usually anyone who comes to Times Square is pretty exposed to uh, take a photo or, or just have the experience of interacting with superheroes like this. Para pasarla lindo en Times Square. Si me permites preguntarte, en un día normal, ¿cuánta plata se gana haciendo esto? So asking how much money you make in a normal day, he says that he they actually don't charge. It's it's up to the person who takes the photo with them. Uh, for them, it's all about giving back to the tourists and providing a good experience. So uh, they'll receive whatever it's giving to them, whether it's a dollar, five, ten. Uh, but to them, the, the, there's it's kind of priceless job. It's it's more about giving uh, back to the tourists and, and the little bit magic of New York. So normal day will be an eight-hour shift, like they will, they will do. In invierno, in verano, in spring, in summer, in any station, right? No, in any season. For example, in three opportunities, Batman, 
ha informado a la policía. So he actually has been helping. Um, sometimes they they are a little bit of informants with the cops. If there's a truck that's been parked here for three days, or there are any packages left over, like like a little bit like the real Batman. He's he's like a vigilante of the city, and he's been uh, watching over people, making sure everything's good. Como el verdadero Batman. Es verdad. Salvo al mundo. How does he make a living? Um, Además de, de, de esto, ¿tienes alguna otra profesión? ¿Te dedicas a algo más? Sí, claro. Eh, soy periodista, soy tu colega. He's a journalist. He actually has a separate gay as a journalist. Uh, so he does Batman and then he's also uh, a journalist. Soy periodista. Debería ser Spider-Man, ¿no? Porque Spider-Man es el verdadero periodista, ¿no? Should be Spider-Man, because Spider-Man is actually a journalist. He dresses up as Batman, is out on the street eight-hour days, doesn't charge people, and is just adding to the magic of New York City. He calls himself Batman of the People. Gracias, Divina. Bendiciones, okay? Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. <laughs> he was amazing. Life. That was so good. I'm done. <laughs> We can go home now. <laughs> We reluctantly parted ways with Batman. He certainly made a lasting impression on us, one that will never be forgotten. We met quite a few more buskers in the subway and around town, but there's just not enough time to share all of that audio. So the overall consensus was buskers are just doing what they love. Some make it a living, and others keep it as a hobby. The fourth and final unique business we wanted to cover was started by a man by the name of Justin Genak. I'd actually met Justin before this interview. It was back in March, when he had spoken at our I Make a Living event, which we hosted in New York. I immediately liked him because he was down to earth. The other thing is it's not marked as explicit, so no cursing. Oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> oh. Uh, there's a curveball there. I remember his use of language when I first met him. It's one of the reasons why I made this comment, but I have to be honest, it was also one of the reasons why I immediately liked him back in March. It added to his down-to-earth personality. He was approachable, and the things he had done over the years were fascinating. So I just really wanted to hear him talk about his life. And I worked at places like Ogilvy, this agency Fallon, New York, and then the small agency Toy where we've made this website, elfyourself.com, that some people may have heard about <laughs> okay. uh, that went nuts. You made that? Yeah. No way. Yeah. I've totally used it. Have you? <laughs> You've elfed yourself? I have. Um, yeah. My whole family did, actually. Uh, that's it. It's, we had no idea what kind of elf fetish we were unlocking with that site. <laughs> but it was like, I think in the first year, there was like 93 million people visited that site in five weeks. That is insane. Yeah, and then the, the second year in like... The second holiday season was like 190-something million. It was like at one point there were eight elves being created every second. As you can tell by my surprise, I had no idea. This was not the reason we had reached out for an interview, but it adds to the reason. Justin is always thinking outside the box. Okay, so tell me all about the garbage project. What <laughs> is this? People must be going, what the hell is she talking about? This was actually the reason why we reached out to him, the garbage project. It's a project that he worked on a little while ago. Full disclosure, he doesn't do it anymore. But where he's at now in his business and career is because of this project. And where he's at now, he's the co-founder and CEO of a company called Working Not Working, which is a database of creatives that are for hire. So companies can follow their favorite creatives and get notified when they're available for contracts. 
It started when my founder and I, we were both freelancers and trying to find work and it's super inefficient. So we ended up making this kind of very curated database and marketplace of creatives. And then companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, Droga5, Widen have been on for a very long time and they go and use it to staff freelance and full-time projects. It's similar to LinkedIn, but for creatives. Justin is successful, but there are a lot of things that have led to his success, one of them being the notoriety of the garbage project. He received a lot of press and accolade for this idea, so let's talk about it. In short, Justin used to sell glass cubes filled with garbage. There's no gimmick here or interesting angle, like it had some sort of higher purpose or something. No, they were literally small glass boxes filled with New York City trash he picked up off the street. I want to be, like, on the street with you uh-huh. as you're picking up no, garbage. No, you don't. It's disgusting. Okay, uh, is, that, is that true? So I haven't done this in, like, five years. But I would go at night because that's when the city's the dirtiest and also people look at me less. Um, and I have gloves on, thick gloves, big garbage bag. I only pick up dry garbage from the sidewalks and the streets. I don't go dig into garbage cans. I'm not a dumpster diver. There's plenty of garbage all over New York City. So I pick that up, dry stuff, and I try to find things that are, like, a centerpiece. So... Greek coffee cups, Starbucks cups, cans, bottles, and then stuff to go around it, whether it's caution tape or police line or um, cigarette butts or broken glass, like all these things that I can kind of weave around the centerpiece of it. And yeah, I just take that and I would bring it home and then I would make the cubes you know, a few days later. I did regular garbage for $50 and then I was doing limited edition garbage for $100 a box. And so I did New Year's Eve in Times Square. I did the World Series at Yankee Stadium. I did the Giants Victory Parade. I did the first day gay marriage was legal. I went down to the city uh, clerk's office and was collecting trash from there. I did Obama's inauguration. The Dublin City Council from Dublin, Ireland flew me over to do St. Patrick's Day parade garbage. And so it just really, like the whole thing just took off. But a funny thing happened though, when they were $10, people thought it was a joke. When they were $25, people thought it was a, like a kind of a clever souvenir from New York. And when it was $50, people started talking about it as art. <laughs> and it's amazing how changing the price changes people's perception of value. And it's, it's exactly what the luxury goods industry is based on. But for me, it was like, wow, this is really powerful and just in the pricing alone. Justin was selling New York City garbage to about 40 or 50 countries all over the world. When he had first thought of the idea, he had no clue it would take off like this. It had all started just because he was trying to prove a point. The summer after my sophomore year at School of Visual Arts here in New York, I had a summer internship at MTV. And one day we were having a discussion about the importance of package design. And someone said packaging didn't matter. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And so I was trying to think of like, how do I prove them wrong? So I was like, well, if I could package something that absolutely nobody would ever want to buy and convince them to buy it, then I knew my package design was successful. And so staring down to Times Square, I was like, oh, it's garbage. People don't want garbage. They throw it away. And it's disgusting. And I was like, if I can package garbage in a way that gets people to buy it, then I could prove the point. So I went and bought like 10 plexiglass boxes, like four inches tall. And I went around at night and had gloves on and garbage bag and picked up only dry garbage. <laughs> wet garbage is gross. Uh, I have a very strong gag reflex too. So it's kind of not the right business for me to be in. Uh, and I made 10 cubes and I had a little cardboard box that I spray painted garbage for sale on the front and I had a little stool and I went out in Times Square and put them in a nice little stack and started hawking them. 
And I was yelling things like, wherever you're from, your garbage sucks compared to ours. New York City garbage, I touch it so you don't have to. And nobody bought it. Oh, okay. And I was out there for maybe like seven, eight hours. And finally at like 10 o'clock at night, and this older gentleman from Ecuador who didn't really speak any English came came by. And he kind of got it. And he's like, no, he picked it up, he smiled, and he asked how much, and I told him $5, which it was at the time, because I, I started at 10 bucks and I just cut the prices because I needed someone to buy this. <laughs> and he handed me $5, and he bought it. And I was like, holy, wow, I just <laughs> sold garbage. And it was such a rush. And so I went home, kind of like skipping my step. And the next day I went out, and I had just more confidence and more enthusiasm, and I sold about five or six more. And I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome, I'm selling trash. And the next few days, I made a website, and I was charging nine ninety nine for them, because that seemed like a price that people like. You know, like I'm I'm using all the tricks to sell. So I also used a bunch of other tricks. So at the time, Beanie Babies were really popular, and I thought it was really dumb that they were like so popular and so expensive because they were limited. And you know, it's just all <laughs> of this crap that they made up to make them feel special. So I was like, well, what can I do with the garbage? So I put a label on it that says "Garbage of New York City." It says 100% authentic, handpicked from the fertile streets of New York, New York. <laughs> I seal it shut so it doesn't open or smell. I put a sticker on the top with the date the garbage was picked to make it seem extra special. At the bottom, I sign it in like a silver pen, and I numbered each one. So I just added all these things to try to make it more collectible. Justin's background in advertising really showed during this whole process. He made garbage desirable, but it all really started taking off when he wrote to a few press outlets about it. The project ended up getting featured by Time Out New York. That just, like, started the avalanche. And I had NBC News in my dorm room, which is like a six-foot by eight-foot dorm room. <laughs> I had, like, bags of garbage in my bathtub. That's where I would store it. Like, and then I would, every morning I would take the bag out, I would take a shower, and then I'd stick the bag back in. <laughs> And then it just led to more press and more press and more press. And international, suddenly, like, Metro newspaper would pick it up. And then the London edition would pick it up. And then I'd be hit up by radio shows and TV shows in London. This was back in 2001. So very early learned the kind of spiderweb effect of virality and how, like, the word gets out. And then suddenly I'm in an Irish thing. And then someone in Asia picks it up. And then I have a Korean news station coming to me and Japanese news station. And it was mind-blowing. And so, yeah, I put it out there and it just took off and it got me every job I've ever gotten in advertising. They're like, yeah, we hired you because of that garbage thing. Because I had an idea and I did it. And then I proved that I could do it. But then also just like, you know, willing to experiment, willing to try things and get things out there. Justin's done several other incredibly creative things since the garbage project. He seemed to be a person just filled with interesting ideas. Some people are naturally inclined to creativity and he's one of them. As he mentioned, this off-the-wall idea is what led to an incredible amount of opportunity for him. The things that he learned and the connections he made through this project has fed into the success of his business today. We hope that highlighting success stories of different people in the grind of building their business has encouraged you on your journey of entrepreneurship. That's the whole point of I Make a Living. The very first episode of this season talked about the loneliness of being self-employed. You hit walls, lose clients, employees, or contracts, and become discouraged, taking one step forward but three steps back, all by yourself. But that's the thing. You're not. 
There are millions of individuals who are stumbling through the same obstacles as you. If there's one thing I've learned while creating this podcast with FreshBooks, it's that I'm not alone. And if the people I've encountered during this whole podcast season can do it and keep moving forward, then so can I. And so can you. Just like these individuals, you have a story to share too. Where you've come from, what you're doing, and your hope for the future. That's a story. It has its sad moments and happy moments just like any story, but no matter what, it's yours. And you can be proud that you haven't given up and that you're working hard with the resources that you have. On that note, we hope you've enjoyed this season of I Make a Living. Stay subscribed to the podcast so we can send you a short update on the release of next season. In the meantime, you're doing great. Be encouraged and keep making a living. My name is Carlin Pounders. I am a freelance technology writer and reporter. My biggest challenge has been getting a job with a bigger news outlet. So the most successful thing that you know I'm accomplishing is creating my own platform. So you can check out tech news and coverage at carlinpounders.com. If you'd like to be featured for Center Stage, there's a link on our website where you can record an introduction. Just go to freshbooks.com slash podcast. I Make a Living was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. To learn more and get an exclusive offer, go to freshbooks.com slash podcast. If you want to attend an event, go to freshbooks.com slash events. Today, we have quite a lot of people to thank. I'll go in order of how they were featured. Robert Samuel, Jerry and Jeff from Same Old Blind Dudes, Iris Scott, the professional finger painter, Lionel Lorador, Joshua Reyes, and Batman of the People, who were the inspirational buskers, and lastly, Justin Genak from The Garbage Project, who is also the founder of Working Not Working. If you'd like to connect to any of these people, you can find their contact information in our show notes. This podcast was made possible because of audio engineering and music composition by James Morris, co-production and direction by Paco Arismendi, and I'm Darby Masters. Thanks for listening to I Make a Living. <laughs>